Be at peace with one another. How do we hear that from Jesus? As a command, as a plea, or as a declaration? Be at peace with one another. How will we respond to it? As a conviction? Perhaps making it our prayer at all times. Our world and the church itself is languishing for lack of peace, and it need not be. Jesus said these strong words in John 16, I've told you these things, that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart. I've overcome the world. Why are we not at peace in our world, in our church, in our families, in our neighborhoods? Perhaps it's as simple and as sad as this. We believe we are better than others, or better than them. However, we might define the we or the I at times. Whatever better means to us, it results in all kinds of turmoil rather than peace. It results in divisions and factions, exclusivity, in quarrels and fighting and judgment, in war, oppression and abuse, in slavery colonization, and genocide. And that's not an exhaustive list. So we hear Jesus again. Be at peace with one another. A vital and forever timely declaration. And I believe it's the key to unlocking and rightly understanding this entire passage that we heard read. To recap, since we're just getting going again in our study, our journey through Mark, Jesus is on the way to Jerusalem, slowly, methodically, I guess we couldn't blame him for taking his time. He knows what's coming in Jerusalem. Although I don't believe he's dragging his feet, I believe he knows there's significant kingdom work and signs to represent his teaching and teaching for the disciples because they are continually slow to perceive and understand what it means to actually walk in and extend the kingdom. And that'll be a repeated theme in this extended section. Twice he has already told them at this point in the story that he must go to Jerusalem. He will be arrested, falsely accused, sentenced, mocked, suffered, put to death. And it must happen in order that he would rise again. They seem to miss that last piece and and get hung up on the, this shall never happen, this can't happen, this is not the way of the Messiah and the way of the kingdom. So twice he's already said it, 831, 930, and a third time he'll say it again in 1033. Yeah, that sounds like the times my kids were out of bed last night needing something, 831, 930, 1033. Uh, and more, just one of those nights, well, it was a Saturday night, so what else is new? There was still kingdom work to be done, and he's teaching repeatedly what that looks like. The, The clear signs that we see are evidence that Jesus is revealing the kingdom to people that are unable to see and receive it, even those that should have easily understood it and walked in it, those that had been steeped in the scriptures and the promises, like the Pharisees, even the disciples who now have been with him for, for years, watching and observing, hearing and listening, and they're still so slow. 
Mark 8, 17, and 18 maybe becomes like a caption that could be on repeat over this entire section in all of these episodes we see. Jesus says to the disciples, do you still not see or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Do you have eyes but fail to see, ears but fail to hear? Don't you remember? As the disciples seemingly bumble along, scratching their heads, debating amongst themselves about what Jesus' teachings mean, being confused by the spiritual realm around them, wondering about the signs, arguing amongst themselves who of them is the greatest when Jesus is in their midst, outright rejecting his declaration of what must happen in Jerusalem. As an aside, I think as we see this this journey continue with the disciples and with Jesus and them coming into the kingdom, I'm always encouraged when I see just kind of the raw realness of of Scripture and the story, that if it was later edited with some agenda, wouldn't wouldn't the disciples have come out maybe a a little more robust in their faith and their grasp and their understanding? I mean, after all, it's their message that is being proclaimed And yet we have such a, especially in Mark, such a transparent look. And that's, I think that's why many believe much of of this gospel had direct record from Peter's account of how things went. Because if you know Peter's story, at the end, he hid nothing because of how much he'd been redeemed and brought back. He said, "This this is truly our journey and what it was to come into the kingdom I think it gives us both conviction and encouragement because if we receive Mark's message the way I believe he intended it to be received and to to be heard, it should make the reader or the hearer ask, is that me? Am I any different than one of those disciples? I'm trying trying to follow Jesus, but do I not see clearly? Where, where Where is my blindness? Where is my hardness of heart? And so it brings right, right conviction when we ask that question humbly. Am I any different? Would I have been any different? I want to say yes, but I know if I'm honest and humble, I'm right there with those disciples. This is, I think, why Mark includes the bookends of these two sections, of this broader section, the bookends of two blind men being healed by Jesus. And then within that story, a deaf man coming to hear Because this is what Jesus wants to do for all of us spiritually. Though we were blind, we come to see in him. Though we were deaf and unable to hear, we come to hear his voice. He heals, he will bring us there. So there's great encouragement, not just conviction. But this is what the word, when rightly received, always does. It convicts but encourages. Doesn't crush or shame. It convicts and encourages because Jesus does not give up on the disciples. He continues to walk with them. Rebuke them at times. Humbly and gently turn them at times. Other times more forcefully. But he will walk with them and they will come to see. And eventually they will walk in the kingdom and extend it powerfully. Jesus is not done and will never give up on these disciples. Even with the hard words that we hear and heard read in this very section. So there's encouragement to us if we see ourselves in the story that he has not done and never will be to pursue us and to walk with us as long as we continue to walk in that desire and that repentance and that confession and that transparency that we see on display. It gives us great hope 
as we walk in pursuit of Jesus. Within this broader section, we see the desperate father in Mark 9 proclaiming a prayer that also encapsulates and maybe summarizes this journey and potentially should be a prayer that we always pray. As he encounters Jesus, he says, I believe, Lord, I believe you can help me. I believe you can heal. I believe you can deliver. Help me in my unbelief. Isn't that a real transparent prayer that often reflects so much of our prayer? I do believe, Lord. Where else would I go? Who else would I turn? I believe you're here. I believe you'll heal. Help me in my unbelief. Help me grow. Help me where I struggle. Help me in those moments of of doubt or even at the same time that I am trying to believe in my doubting. The Father serves then as a juxtaposition like so many others that Jesus encounters on this road, on this way. The juxtaposition of the ones that should have received the kingdom and immediately walked into it and been walking it in power, the, the disciples and maybe even the Pharisees, are the ones that continue to struggle the most, while the, the last and the least likely ones are the ones that come into the kingdom that are affirmed and esteemed, maybe even the lowly ones, but the blind see, the deaf hear, the demon-possessed and oppressed are delivered, children are honored and esteemed and valued and blessed. That's where we left off last week, considering what it would look like to have childlike faith, perhaps even becoming a theme for us as we walk through 2022. Because Jesus said, unless you receive the kingdom like one of these children, you'll never walk in it. What does it look like to have childlike faith and response to Jesus? Something that seems rather to have rather immediate applications for us and yet could easily take the entire year of meditation of, Lord, teach me childlike faith and trust, maybe hope and joy in you and in your kingdom. These next few weeks, I'll focus on this theme of kingdom perception. It's not a new theme because it's really Mark's primary theme of the upside-down kingdom. The kingdom just looks different to us from our worldly eyes, different than any worldly kingdom. To be great is to be last to serve and to give, to be childlike, not to strive for power and accomplish it through force as the world does. To walk in the kingdom and receive it and perceive it. Life in the kingdom is not only a future and eternal hope, it is a present and possible reality. That's what Mark is proclaiming also through the words of Jesus. It's the way the gospel opens up. Repent and believe because the kingdom of God is here. It is near. It is coming. Repent. Metanoia, we've looked at many times, simply means eyes open, see rightly, behold correctly. Because of that, you could not do anything else than turn course, change direction, turn around, because you recognize the path that you are on is not the path to the destination you're after. That's repentance, to perceive and see anew rightly. And the kingdom of God is near. It is here. Walk in it now. It's why Jesus taught his disciples to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now as it will be forever. More and more, Lord, here and now. That's the kingdom reality that Jesus wants to reveal to his followers and have them walk in now, which will be their life for eternity. So this passage and chapter 10 contain some I don't know, a fairly well-known teachings of Jesus. They're repeated in various contexts in different ways in the other Gospels, the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. So they're similar words that we've probably heard, many of us have heard, 
read many times if we've read through the Gospels, maybe even studied in depth. And yet I believe these kinds of words are largely taken out of context and misapplied significantly. Let's redeem them in their context to rightly receive them, not as a list of do's or don'ts about simple topics like sin and hell and divorce and wealth, to name a few that we'll get into. These must be received within the context of kingdom reality. Have we perceived the kingdom reality and the contrast of what that looks like compared to the ways of the world, the ways that are natural to us? So listen again to this first part of the section, verse 38 and 40, through 41, and then verse 50, which concludes this block. They're vital. The verse 50, the end, is vital to unlocking the, the beginning, as it often is in scriptures, as a conclusion statement to a teaching or to a passage, which is supposed to be the aha. There we see it. But this, I think the, the middle section is often just taken out and studied on its own or proclaimed on its own. These strong words are try, try to be dissected on its own to understand, and we must receive it both in the encounter that led to those words and then the summary statement. So John, one of the apostles, says, teacher, rabbi, Jesus, we saw a man driving out demons in your name. We told him to stop because he was not one of us. Do not stop him, Jesus said. No one who does a miracle in my name can in the next moment say anything bad about me. Whoever is not against us is for us. I tell you the truth. Anyone who gives you a cup of water in my name because you belong to Christ will certainly not lose his reward. Salt is good. If it loses saltiness, how can it be made salty again? Be salty in yourselves and be at peace with one another. And I began with that last line intentionally because I think that is the key of what Jesus is proclaiming here that helps us understand this first section. So once again, the disciples are revealing their, their arrogance. This is blinding them from perceiving the kingdom of God, just as they have been arguing about who was the greatest amongst them now they are proving that they have this exclusiveness in their club. John says, Jesus, essentially, you'll be proud of us. We saw this man, he was driving out demons, or trying, we think, and we put an end to that. He has never been one of us. Remember, it was often not just the 12 who were with Jesus, but crowds and many, dozens of people that was the extended community. We checked, we made sure he's never been one of us. He's never made it in. And so we put an end to that. Jesus reward us is the inferred statement from John. And then Jesus turns it on its head, upside down again, and says, don't stop him, he's not against us. He's taking a stand against evil in my name, in my character. That's for us. That's kingdom. How do you miss that? They've been blinded by the pride of exclusivity. They thought they were better than this man by their proximity to Jesus, by what he had entrusted to them, by the authority he had given. Now, certainly, these disciples have a unique blessing. But apparently, that went straight to their head in this arrogant, prideful thinking to be exclusive in the kingdom. There's no exclusivity. 
All are being called and drawn into the kingdom of God. Jesus came to pursue all peoples. There's no VIP access. If anything should have been clear to the disciples by now, it's that anyone can walk into the kingdom and receive it and be blessed by Jesus, perhaps even ahead of them because of their lowly state, their childlike faith, their humble need. Like the Father, I believe, help me in my unbelief. I have nowhere else to turn. You're my only hope. That kind of heart, that kind of humility. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for they will see the kingdom. So they've been blinded by this pride as we see continue in the story. And now look at verse 42, which if you have your Bibles or your apps open, it, I looked at a number of English translations, and most of those translations I looked at, it starts a new paragraph with maybe even a new heading, which is totally unhelpful. Remember, that's not how Mark would have written. In fact, the lines would have just run into each other with no punctuation at all. Verse 42 begins with the word and, a conjunction. It's a very awkward place to put a break, a new paragraph, and a heading for the next section. They must be received together. That's the way they were intended. So let me read verse 41, then 42. Jesus says, I tell you the truth, anyone who gives you a cup of water in my name because you belong to Christ will certainly not lose his reward. And if anyone causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to be thrown into the sea with a large millstone tied around his neck. I've heard taught, it seems like a number of translators and scholars believe that that second statement in verse 42 harkens back to verses 36 through 37, that he's still speaking of children. He's not. Micron in the Greek means little one, directly, a direct translation. We get the word micro from micron. It's a good translation, the little one, but it's rarely used for children. It's used for status often, a lesser person in the eyes of the world, a lesser one, an overlooked one. And I believe that's what Jesus intends and that's what fits in this broader context. Like this one who's driving out demons in my name, though he's not, he's not one of the close ones, which means he probably knows very little of the kingdom. That may be all he knows is that the kingdom of God has come to deliver and to bring justice and righteousness and help for the oppressed. By the eyes of the disciples, he's lowly. He's not, he's not welcome. He's not one of us. And Jesus says, no, in the kingdom, he is. It's the lowly ones that are welcomed and esteemed. And even if one of these little ones just comes to serve you with the smallest gesture, a cup of cold water, they will be rewarded. That's the kingdom economy that you're totally missing. He may be least in your eyes, and you may dismiss him and rebuke him, but he will be rewarded in my eyes. The lowest servant often has the highest place. The last will be first, and the first will be last in the upside-down kingdom. And so now the connection. If anyone causes one of these lowly ones, these meekest of servants these ones that you are trying to stop from engaging in the kingdom to sin, to sin, to miss the kingdom, to miss walking in it, to not experience it, it would be better for them to die and quickly. Okay, that's a harsh statement, isn't it? To be thrown into the sea with a millstone hung around your neck. Why? 
Because standing in the way opposed to kingdom work, denying and restricting, especially the last and the least, from coming to Jesus is antithetical to the gospel. It's the work of Satan. It's anti-Christ. There's nothing, there's nothing worse than blocking access to Jesus from those that have no position or prestige or power on earth. And it would be better for that person to be removed, in fact, to die, than to continue to build that resume. And he doubles down with these hard words. Verses 43 through 47. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life maimed than with two hands and go into Gehenna. Let me translate literally what that word is. Maybe we hear it differently and I think more accurately. Where the fire never goes out. If your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than to have two feet and be thrown into Gehenna. And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into Gehenna. You'll be able to walk in my kingdom with a limp, and that will be better with right perception. You'll be able to see more clearly with one eye than to continue in this path. Gehenna. Gehenna was a literal place. It was a valley outside of Jerusalem that was there, often garbage dump, refuse heap, and it would burn, and they would burn their, their, their trash. And often that, that fire would never go out. This is, he, Jesus is not talking about some eternal judgment with, with the devil and his pitchfork here. He's saying a, a real place. It would be better for you. It's, a, it's an equivalent to a tragic thing, a painful thing, a tragic death, being thrown into the sea with a millstone around your neck or being thrown into the valley of the garbage dump with burning and fire. They're equivalent horrible things. And it would be better for, for that, for God to remove you, than for you to continue to restrict access to his kingdom and to his grace and to his love from the last and the least. So it would be better for you to tear it out, to tear out that pride, to tear out that arrogance, that exclusivity, even if it hurts, even if it's like a part of you. Jesus never meant for this to be literal, thankfully. Only a very few have thought maybe he was literal here with right and wise reading. We know he's just making a forceful point of spiritual perception in the kingdom and how vital that is. He may have used this kind of language repeatedly for different contexts, for different kinds of sins that beset us. In Matthew 5, he, he relates it to lust and adultery. But here he's relating it to pride and to arrogance, primarily, and exclusivity to work in and walk in the kingdom. Better to tear that out, have that ripped out, and to still walk in the kingdom than to eternally suffer outside of God's kingdom, because that is antithetical to life in the kingdom, to life walking with me. Tragically, this kind of arrogance, exclusivity, and pride, factions and divisions, has been a part of the story of God's people forever. And here it is on display in the Gospels. 
arrogance, hierarchy, oppression, and the rest. What a witness to the world. We're meant to be unified, to love one another as Christ has loved us. In Jesus' most impassioned prayer, John 17, 11, Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. The early church then battled this significantly. The first church council was on this issue, essentially, on us and them, the Jewish Christians, the Gentile ones, how to make the Gentiles conform to become Jewish in order to receive Jesus. I think they got that mostly right and said, no, no, we are already one in Christ. Paul had to battle this consistently. He even confronted Peter, as recorded in Galatians chapter 2, for this kind of exclusivity, this division, this faction. Jesus withdrew and began to only eat among, with Jews. Gentiles can eat on their own. We have different customs, different ways, so let's just be separate. Paul addressed it significantly to the Corinthian church over their factions and exclusion, which showed up even in their worship gatherings. And the way that they celebrated communion, 1 Corinthians 11, 17 and following. As we read through this, I'm guessing it's a familiar passage for some. It's often used in, in, in pre-communion celebrations. And the full context is important but tragic to see where the church was. 1 Corinthians eleven seventeen and the following directives, I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there's divisions among you. Yes, to some extent, I believe that. No doubt there have been differences among you to show which of you has God, have God's approval. What sarcasm. When you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat, though you say that's what you're doing. But you eat, each one goes ahead without waiting for anyone else. One remains hungry, another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you for this? No, certainly not. Verse 27, Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Verse 30, that is why many among you are weak and sick, and a number of you have died, have fallen asleep. Significant consequence, connecting back even to Jesus' words, of division and factions of exclusivity within the body of Christ. Antithetical to the gospel, with tragic consequences. In the kingdom, the ground as has often been said, and I think said by the Puritans and old hymns, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. Come on, equal plane. When we come to the table, we are eye to eye. Hierarchy ends. As we break bread together, we break down walls. We must be vigilant to not allow the divisions that plague our world to come into the body of Christ. Lower ourselves. Esteem others is the repeated call of the gospel. Romans 12, 3, for by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought. Think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the measure of faith that God has given to you. Sadly, divisiveness, arrogance seems to continue as it has through the ages, even today. Certainly, 
within specific local churches. I think I sense it more in the broader context amongst denominations or local churches that will refuse to work together or partner together. We, we, we tend to think we're better than others. It's kind of our nature. We're a little more holy. We're a little more faithful to Scripture. We're a little more spiritual. We're a little more generous. We're a little more anything than those, than them. And Jesus could not have harsher words against that spirit and that attitude. It's sinful tribalism, looking down on others to esteem ourselves as if we're further ahead in the line. May we take the last place. Paul urges the Philippian church in the same way, chapter 2 of Philippians. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, one with Christ, if you have any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the Spirit of God, if any tenderness and compassion, make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility, consider others better than yourselves. The upside-down kingdom. In the eyes of God, the right-side-up kingdom, the only way. No wonder many in our world want nothing to do with the church. The world is not ignorant of its message, of its founder, for oneness, for unity, for meekness, for humility, for grace and compassion. Interestingly, it seems that all the studies that are coming, as in the Western world, especially the next generations, can't seem to leave the church institution fast enough. Yet those studies are also still in given response to Jesus and a desire to pursue Jesus or to know him or to explore him are just as high as they've been over the last number of decades. Translation, our world is just as interested in Jesus, the person, the man, the movement maker, the rabbi, the teacher, however they would ascribe him. They're just as interested as they always have been with less and less interest in the church institution. And I think this is likely at the core of it. A lack of unity, a lack of oneness, a lack of grace, and us and them. They're not one of us. We put an end to that on social media. We canceled them. But a community that will not set itself up against other communities, but will humbly welcome, affirm, work toward partnership, start with where we are unified and where we agree, not with where we disagree. And certainly some of those disagreements are significant, not to be ignorant of those, but a community that esteems the lowly and the weak in the eyes of the world, that welcomes them, that gives them the first place and the best seat. This will be a salty church. Maybe I'll come back to that phrase. Maybe I'll come back to Gehenna and hell. I'm leaving you hanging there. I joked earlier, maybe we'll go to hell next week. There's more to this passage, clearly. The community, though, that, does, that walks in this humility, esteems the lowly, that welcomes, that works to partner with others for the message of the gospel is a salty church. What is salt? In that, especially in that day, it was flavor. It was richness. It, was, it enhanced. It was, it's, salt is simple and it's pure. It's 
basic, it's elemental. That's what Jesus means. It's salty, it's attractive, it draws people in. If salt loses its saltiness, it's nothing. It would be spit out of your mouth. It's, it's useless. Salt can also preserve and it can do other things. But it's, it's attractive. It's enjoyable. Be a salty church that loves one another in the broader kingdom, that esteems and affirms where we can, that starts with that posture. Our world is languishing for a lack of that posture. What kind of disciples will we be? God help us. God give us courage and conviction. God give us eyes to see. Reveal where we are blind, even to our own pride and our own exclusivity. Root it out, Lord. Give us ears to hear, a humility to slow down and listen. Give us your heart to respond in action, by faith, motivated by your love for us. Amen. Amen. First Thessalonians 5.23, Paul's benediction to the church at Thessalonica could be ours today. May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who calls you is faithful. He will do it. Do it, Lord, we pray.